If you know, if you've been around the story, you know that I wrote a book called Scripture and the Skeptic. We're going through it one chapter at a time. You don't have to read the book to understand the messages. So if you don't want to buy the book, you think it's, you know, weird for me to be up here talking about it or whatever, like you don't have to buy it to read it. You, you can just listen to the messages and you'll get what I'm saying, all right? So, um, so that's how I designed these, these messages so that there's no pre-required reading. Um, the book is a supplement to the messages and vice versa. And I will say today's chapter that we're covering, chapter five, my favorite chapter in the book, if I dare say, like uh, is my, it's my favorite one to go back and revisit. It's, it's, a, it's a chapter that deals with a question I hear a lot of people asking some version of, which is, why is the Bible so messy? Why is the Bible so messy? And I want to explain what I mean by messy from the outset. When I say messy, I don't mean weird. Like, everybody knows the Bible's weird. You know, there's a lot of weird stuff in the Bible. There's a lot of weird rules. There's Levitical laws, like, you know, don't get amorous with your neighbor's livestock. Like, you weren't going to. Anyway, right, like, like if your friend has a, has a mole with a yellow hair going out of it, don't touch him. Like, you probably wouldn't anyway. You know, it's like, like that stuff's weird. But here's the thing. Skeptics, even unbelieving skeptics, are willing to give the Bible a pass on the weird stuff. Because, yeah, it's 2,000 or more years old, and there's going to be weird stuff in it. It's a different culture. It's a different time. And so the weirdness isn't necessarily a deal breaker. That's not what I mean with messy. What I mean with messy is when... The Bible, or in some instances when God himself seems to cross a line from just weird and and ancient to immoral, and in some cases even seemingly even evil, and the question on the skeptic's mind is how do I reconcile a God who claims to be good, holy, righteous, and perfect with a book that portrays him otherwise, seemingly? How do we make sense of this kind of, of uh, potentially irreconcilable difference? You know, if, if we are led to believe the, that, that God is, is good and perfect, shouldn't we be allowed to, to ex- uh, expect the Bible to be good and perfect? I don't think that's unreasonable. And so if that's kind of where you're at in your, in your walk right now, just know that my, my heart kind of resonates with yours. I understand the struggle. I was deep in doubt as a cynic, really, not just a skeptic, but an unbelieving cynic about things like Christianity and the Bible for 13 years. And so um, here's, here's what I've come to believe. I think there are ways for us to understand the messiness of the Bible without checking our brains at the door, without forsaking logic, without compromising what we think is good or right, um, and, and, you know, just accepting evil things be- because, you know, he's God and we just have to get over it. I, I think it's, I think it's, there's a clearer way to understand this. I'm going to talk about three different reasons why I think the Bible is messy, okay? So the first reason that I think would help us to make sense of the messiness of the Bible is that the Bible is messy because life is messy. The Bible is messy because life is messy. In this chapter, chapter 5, I talked about the stories of four different women in the Bible. So these are Bible stories about women. Half the book is about women in the Bible. I did not set out to do that. I didn't mean to. But I've found that these issues that look to people today, like gender inequality, sexism, misogyny, that these can be deal breakers for people. And so I think the Holy Spirit kept letting me to write about women and their stories in Scripture. 
and to make sense of some of those stories that we find, because some of them are just horrific. And all four of these women that I mentioned in this chapter endured some absolutely excruciating circumstances through really no doing of their own, just because they had been abandoned and forsaken by the men who God had charged with protecting them. So men looked away, men forsook them, men just disposed of them. But what's interesting in a recurring theme in the Bible is that when men fall short, God comes through. So God always looks toward the one who's forgotten by men. God always goes after the one who's disposed of by men. And so this is, in all of these stories, God does the same to preserve their dignity, to preserve their story. There's a reason why we still tell these stories today, because God saw to it that these stories were preserved in Scripture. So one of the stories that really stands out to me is one that we'll walk through today as part of our teaching, and it's from Genesis 38. It's this twisted saga of Judah and Tamar. And most people who've never heard the story probably wouldn't believe it's actually in the Bible because it's so incredibly weird and twisted and messy. Before we get to what happened to Tamar, we have to understand who Judah was. So let's get contextual for a second, okay? So who was Judah? You probably heard the name. We've, he comes up in Christian songs and, and liturgy sometimes. Like Judah's a big deal in the Bible. Jesus is called the Lion of Judah because he is a descendant of Judah and in Judah's family tree. Okay, so Judah is kind of, he's one of the the leaders, the forerunners of the 12 tribes of Israel, great-grandson of Abraham, pretty big deal, biblically speaking. Here's the problem. Judah is supposed to be some kind of a hero in the Bible. He was an awful human being. (laughs) Judah was a degenerate for most of his life. There's no getting around it. One chapter before the story I'm about to tell you, Judah sold his brother out. And not in a, like, I'm telling mom kind of way, he literally sold his brother to human traffickers from another country. And then he led his father to believe that a wild animal had attacked the younger brother. His father was heartbroken and weeping bitterly. And Judah had the nerve to go, I'm so sorry, dad. I'm so sorry for your loss. Knowing all the while that the son was not only alive, he was a slave now you know, thanks to Judah. So that's the kind of character we're dealing with. And it just gets worse for a minute, right? So in the beginning of Genesis 38, the chapter we're looking at today, Judah moved. He left home. It's kind of rare for a son to just leave the the family farm or the family business of herding or whatever, like to leave his father's house. Judah did that. And it's probably because of his shame. How do you look your father in the eye after doing what he did? And that's what shame does to us. It keeps us running and we run and we run and we think we can outrun our sin, but it keeps following us. And we, we realize that no matter where we are, there we are. You know, like no matter where we are, our sin is still there. And Judah, even though he moved to another place and married another, a girl from another country, had a few kids, Judah realized in, in, in short order, he was still the same guy. He's still the same sinner, still the same degenerate. And his, his sons appear to be as well. Because the first son named Ur took a wife in this foreign country. He married a non-Hebrew girl, just like his daddy did. That's not the bad part. I don't mean that at all. But, but uh, God smiled on that in the Old Testament. But, but Ur took a wife named Tamar. But he was, uh, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, kind of a bad guy. God saw his evil. God struck him down. I don't know what he was up to. Must have been serious. 
God struck him down, leaving Tamar a widow. So I need you to picture Tamar, a woman of color, probably in her teens at this point in the story, and now a widow. Widows were in a different place then than they are today. Today, they're still vulnerable socially in some ways, but then it was way worse, infinitely worse. It wasn't like they got a life insurance payout and they could hop on Tinder and find a new guy. You know, it wasn't like they had all these prospects. A young widow like Tamar was facing a lifetime of just being destitute. When her father died, she was basically hung out to dry, potentially on the streets, eating, begging to eat, and and working probably the world's oldest profession to get by. Like, that's the kind of future a woman like Tamar was in unless someone intervened. And God, in his law in the Old Testament, set up the system of, like, social security, really, for women like Tamar. And the system, it's going to feel uncomfortable to you for a second, women especially. So the system went like this. Uh, If you were married to a man and he died, his younger brother or younger relative was to become your new husband. I know, I know ladies, but listen, you have to understand what what a desperate situation a widow is in. All things considered, she's trying to survive at this point. And so Tamar was basically handed down in marriage to the second son, whose name was Onan. Now, if you were raised in an evangelical church or Baptist church or a Catholic church where you actually read the Bible or you're actually told these things about, um, you know, sexual sin and stuff like that, um, you probably cringe when I say Onan because you've been told that Onan did one thing when in fact he did another really even worse thing, okay? So some of you are really lost right now. Read it for yourselves. I'm not gonna get into it, okay? Genesis 38. But basically, Onan's responsibility was to give Tamar the benefit of childbirth. Children were another layer of security because even if husband and father died, if you had children, especially sons, to look after you and provide for you, you were covered. So Onan, instead of fulfilling his responsibility, again, kind of like his daddy, just using people up, he used Tamar's body, but again, not to go into details here, he did not allow for her to have the benefit of childbirth. I don't even know. Okay, I'm going to keep going, but y'all can check it out, okay? So um, so he used her physically and then didn't give her what God said was hers by right, the possibility of having children. God saw Onan's sin struck Onan down, and now Tamar is a widow twice over, even a more desperate situation. But Judah has three sons, right? Had three. Now he's got one, but there's one more chance. Judah is not feeling this at all. Uh, he's starting to think that Tamar might be a little off. Like she married two of his sons. They were healthy when they got married and then they were both gone. So maybe something's off with Tamar. And he lied to her. Judah lied to her. Now, right or wrong, some of y'all are like, I would do the same thing. It's kind of weird. But listen, he lied to her. And the Bible says he had no intention of ever doing right by her. And so he lied to her. He said, go live with your dad for a while. When my youngest son, Shayla, is of age to get married, I'll make sure you two are connected in marriage. So just trust me, I'll be in touch. Go home to your dad. So Tamar went home to her dad and she waited, presumably for years. She waited. Can you imagine? I don't know if you've ever been vulnerable, like really vulnerable. Can you imagine with every passing day how deep her anxiety got? What's my future look like? Who's going to take care of me? 
is Judah going to come through for me? It's been a long time. Now, she didn't hear a word from Judah until this passage that we're going to read right now. This is from Genesis 38, verses 13 to 19. Now, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law, Judah, is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes. She was still dressed like a widow after years of waiting because that's who she was. It defined her, her widow status. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat down on the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. So busy road, lots of passers-by. And she wanted to get a look at, uh, at, at uh, Judah. Here's the, here's the twist. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, so Shelah's with Judah, the youngest son is with Judah, and he's a grown man. Got a beard, beer belly, I don't know, but she knew he was a man and that she still wasn't married to him. And she realized what Judah had been up to. Though he'd grown up, she'd still not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face and she's sitting by a road. Like, why else would a woman be just behaving in this way? Like sitting by a street in those days. When Judah saw her, thought she was a prostitute, covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and da 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 propositioned her. Okay, next slide. And what will you uh, give me, she asked in return. He said, I'll give you a young goat for my flock. I guess that's the going rate in those days. I don't know, I don't know what the valuation of goats were, but and then she says, will you give me something then as a pledge until you can send me the goat? So they're working this out, negotiating. And Tamar is sharp, she's quick. Like she's got, she got some sense about her because at least as desperate as he is, she, she sees kind of an opening here, a possibility. She's like, I need some collateral because she knows this man to be a liar. And so she says, what will you give me? And he says, what should I give you? And she says, your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, which you have to know are all forms of ID. They're, it's like, give me your your passport, your driver's license, and, you know, one other form of identification, your utility bill or something. I don't know. But like, that's what she's asking for to hold as collateral until the goat is delivered. So Tamar's got some wheels turning. She sees an opportunity. And, of course, Judah, not thinking straight, typical male behavior in a situation like this, he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. It's another plot twist. She became pregnant by him. And after she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. All right. We all agree this is messy. This is a messy, messy story. So um, what, what happened next is, I guess, no real surprise. First, Judah, a few days later, sent a courier with the goat to find the woman of the night that he had had this encounter with. But the courier said there were no women working in the world's oldest profession at at Enaim, where you met this woman. So I couldn't find anyone. What should I do? He said, forget it. I'll go to the DMV, get a new ID. It'll be a hassle, but whatever. I just will move on, try to avoid any shame here. Three months after that, word gets around to Judah that Tamar is pregnant. How do you think Judah reacted, given his track record? Given that he was never intending to do right by Tamar, never intended to do God's will for her, protect her, given what he had done with this unknown woman on the side of the road, how do you think he responded to her apparent sin? Because listen, legally, she's still a part of his family. Technically, she's engaged to his son. And she's, I won't tell you what he said she did. She, he uses some vulgar language to describe her behavior. 
and he shamed her. And he's furious, furious at Tamar for this supposed sin, which tells you something about Judah. Like the hubris, the self-righteousness is so palpable that it's easy at this point in the story just to start to to really kind of (laughs) hate Judah. I think we can all agree that Judah is not a lovable character, but can we all really say that we're that different than Judah? And maybe you're a little less messed up. Maybe you never accidentally impregnated your daughter-in-law. Congratulations, that's great. But how many of us have been fixated on someone else's sin and blind to our own? How easy is it for us to sit high on our pedestals in self-righteous condemnation of other people's sin and totally forget about our own? That's the frame of mind that Judah is in. I mean, I mentioned the stuff he did did to Tamar, but think all the way back to what he did to his dad, to his brother. Like, he should be carrying around a healthy level of shame. But he's not. All he's fixated on is her sin, all right? So I'm going to say, uh, wrap up this part just by saying that one reason the Bible is messy is because life is messy and the Bible is reflecting the world as it is. And anything short of a really messy, honest Bible would look suspicious to us. It's not the world that we know. Second reason or way I think we can make sense of the messiness of the Bible is to just admit that the Bible's messy because we are a mess. We're not that different from Judah, really, if we're honest. I remember when my daughter, who's 13 now, she's taller than her mama. She's growing up. She's bright and beautiful. But I remember her as a little baby, right? So, and, uh, and when she was a little baby, she was always a talker. And her first word was, uh-oh, and her second word was, da-da. I could tell you everything she's, she said as a little baby, including her first complete sentence. I'll never forget it. Because her mother and I heard this, uh, this commotion from her room and of course, she's our first kid, so we went, we sprinted into her room. Um, with, with later children, you stop sprinting, right? You're just like, you good? You're good. You know, so <laughs> with your first, you go running, and we went running into, into Joelle's room, and, and uh, she was covered in blood. And the bed was bloody, and there was like handprints of the of blood on the wall, and it was like a Game of Thrones scene up in her room, and we were freaked out, and Turns out she had a nosebleed, right? This is a Huffman family trait. We get them. I don't know why we get them, but we get, and they're bad, all right? Those are first of many. And, uh, and so that, in that moment, covered in blood, her mom and daddy panicking, she said her first complete sentence, three words. I'm a mess. <laughs> that was her first, first complete sentence. I'm a mess. And I'll never let her forget that that was her first complete sentence. I'm going to tell that story at her wedding one day just uh, to embarrass her a little bit. And it's always fun to think about the funny things that kids do. But as with many, many of the things our kids do and say, there's also like a deeper meaning, right? There's like something deeper there. There's always a lesson. When you're a dad, you're always looking for the lessons, right? And there's a lesson in being able to admit you're a mess when you're clearly a mess. And some of us have lost this ability because we're so self-deluded in our sin that we would rather focus on everyone else's mess and consider our own not a problem. I'm okay. I'm fine. You know, my desires are a little off. I'm a little bit of, I'm a little twisted or whatever, and I know it, but, but 
everybody's been telling me that I'm a good guy. My mom has told me that I should have more self-esteem and I should believe in myself and, and that my desires are good. And, and so I think, I think I'm okay. And, and we get self-deluded in this world when really if, if we wanted to be free, if we wanted to be free from our patterns of sin, simply saying I'm a mess would be the first step in that direction. Being able to say, I need help. I'm a mess. I'm a sinner. There's no freedom in the world like admitting openly that you are the worst hypocrite that you know, because then what can someone say against you? Yeah, I'm a sinner. You're right. I just said it. I know it. I'm a sinner. And the Bible is always talking about this. And I know sometimes we talk about sin in church or you read about sin in the Bible and you, it just feels like somebody's bludgeoning you with a spiritual, you know, just hammer just to beat you down and make you feel bad as if that's, you know, it's just to take your self-esteem away. That's not the point. The Bible gets that bad rap, especially uh, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. People think of him as being super rigid and mean, always talking about what a depraved world we live in, what a bunch of sinners that we are. Please understand that Paul, before he said all those things, said, I, Paul, am chief of sinners. I'm the worst one. And then he would say, y'all are bad too. Y'all have got some problems as well. And then he would talk about Jesus. Because just defining the mess is not the point of the story. It's just one twist along the way. So check out what Paul says in uh, his letter to the Colossians. This is chapter 3 of his letter, um, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 3. This is what Paul said. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. So he's saying something has happened here. When you come to faith in Jesus, something happens here. And you have become a new creation here. You are becoming something else now. You are not who you were. This sin you're in is not who you are. There's something else happening. He said, set your hearts now on things above, not earthly things. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God, hang on to that, the wrath of God is coming. Dun, 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 all right? We're gonna talk about wrath in a second. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now, you used to, but now, you used to, but now, you're different now. You must rid yourselves of all these things, anger and rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips, amen, hallelujah, filthy language. We don't, we don't talk about that. You know why? Because I'm the worst. <laughs> That's why I don't preach on it. I don't want to be called out. <laughs> I'm the worst. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge of its image, of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. We think of being confronted with your sin as punishment. It's not. It's grace. Someone who loves you but never never demonstrates any wrath. You have to wonder if that's really love. Sometimes the worst thing you can do to somebody you claim to love is to tell them how great they are all the time. Because it's not true. Being called out on your sin is the first step in this real turnaround, really. And you see that in Judah's life. One of the great things about the Bible is how some of these awful characters Judah and David and other guys that just don't ever seem to get it right. 
in certain parts of their lives. They're called out on their sin. They confess, they repent, and they're made new. So in the moment that Judah um, called out Tamar's sin, he actually called for her execution. He said she should be burned alive for getting pregnant outside of wedlock. That's how angry he was. He sent a bunch of henchmen to her father's house to drag her out and burn her in the street. And in that moment, Tamar pulled off one of the most just gutsy, most gangster moves in all the Bible. I love it. She's just so dramatic. She's being dragged out of her father's house to be executed publicly and publicly shamed. And somehow she produces, I don't know if she had tucked away in a robe or something, but she produces the seal and the staff and the cord of Judah. And she says, find the man to whom these things belong. He is my baby's father. And of course, everybody knows that family seal. It's Abraham's family, the most famous family in the region. Everybody knows it's Judah. Judah knows it's Judah. And to his credit, finally, Judah repents. After running from one sin to another, Judah finally stops and he says, she's right. She is good. I am bad. She is right. I am wrong. And and he turned it around. And for the rest of his life, Judah was a different man. I mean, toward the end of his life in, in Genesis 44, it's Judah who's doing the right thing by Joseph, his brother who he sold out. And Joseph's in Egypt now, and Judah is trying to reconcile his family to Joseph. It's Judah standing in the gap again, doing what's right by his father. It's Judah who from this point on in the story took Tamar into his house, took care of her, fed her, looked after her, provided for her, protected her without asking or expecting anything from her in return for the rest of her life. Judah was changed by this experience of being confronted with his sin. Don't run from those opportunities to be confronted with your own sin. That's an opportunity that grace affords us to turn our life around, to become the person God created you to be. So the Bible is messy because life is messy. The Bible is messy because we are a mess. Finally. The Bible is messy because love is messy, all right? Love is messy. Okay, so you heard that word wrath earlier. I said I'd come back to it. Nobody likes the word wrath, the wrath of God. God full of wrath and vengeance. You know, it's like you can't say it in a, you gotta say it in a British accent almost to get the full effect, the wrath. Because we we have this image of wrath as being something other than love, that Someone can't be wrathful toward you or toward your sin if they love you. No, that's not how it works. Like, rage and love might be incompatible, but wrath and love go hand in hand, right? And so the, the, the best explanation I've heard of this is uh, in a Maybe God episode that's coming up. We're releasing it this week. Um, a Maybe God podcast episode, if you're not familiar with the podcast that we do here. Special guest, Dr. Joe Vitale, brilliant Christian scholar and and Christian apologist, she described wrath this way. Check out Joe Vitale. But as a general principle, the thing that helped me when I was working through this was actually when something really awful happened. And one of my my best friends was raped and 
just watching her go through the horror of that mm. and the way she began to just hate herself and blame herself and not eat and and just bounce from one relationship to another because she just couldn't cope with intimacy anymore there's just so much hurt in her life and and it's very hard to describe how angry I was that this had happened to her but also how angry I was that the, the guy who did this to her got away with it mm. and um and I think that was the first time when something clicked for me that actually like being angry about something. Uh, I mean, the Bible has this word wrath and that sounds so antiquated and terrible, yeah. doesn't it? The word wrath, but actually wrath doesn't mean like you're flying off the handle in a fit of rage. Wrath is like God's uncompromising, unrelenting hatred towards evil in all of its forms. That's what wrath is. It's God's hatred of when people treat each other in appalling ways. And that's what I was experiencing at that point in my life. I was experiencing wrath. And actually, that was a mm. righteous anger. That wasn't like a, I wasn't crazy to feel that way. There wasn't something wrong with me feeling that way. I felt that way because I loved her. And that's what you do when you love somebody and something terrible happens to them. Like, I think too often we we contrast the two and we think that um, judgment is the opposite of love, right? That's our culture. You just accept yeah. me for who I am. Just love me for who I am. If you judge me, you can't possibly love me. Um, but actually, that doesn't make any sense. And I think we're realizing that doesn't make any sense today in our world uh, uh, where we demand justice. You know, the irony here is that today we live in a culture where we are so passionate about justice and for wrongs to be put to right. And we want people who do wrong to be held accountable. And yet when we come to the Old Testament and we see people being held accountable for injustice, uh, we get mad at God for doing the very thing that we we want him to do today. And sometimes I think we're confused about maybe what was going on at the time, how appalling the treatment was, um, why, why certain things are a big deal, because to us, they're not a big deal in our culture. Like, it's interesting to me that we live in a culture today where if you steal a TV, you go to prison. But if you commit adultery and break up someone's marriage, that's not that's not <laughs> a crime. There's no, you know there's a punishment for that. The Old Testament values things differently. It values people far more than property. That's why adultery is a capital offense in the Old Testament because marriage is so sacred yeah. and people are so sacred and relationships are so sacred because marriage, not only because of the devastation caused by adultery in people's lives and how life ruining it is, but actually because marriage is an image of God's love for his people. It's the closest we have in human relationships to what God feels for us. Um, and, and so that, that's something to be protected. We haven't understood the heart of God that is so for people that that judgment is not the opposite of love, but actually it's the expression of love. When someone you love is wronged, your heart cries out for justice. And if we made that way, how much more so is God? And and the more I've, I've come to see the injustice in the world, the more I feel, actually, how could I possibly worship a God who doesn't stand up for evil, who just kind of sweeps it away under some divine cosmic carpet and says, hey, no big deal. No big deal that that happened to you. No big deal that you were raped. No big deal that you were treated in this racist way. No big deal that your father did that to you. That's not the God of the Bible. He says this matters. This matters profoundly. Um, yeah. Justice has to be served. So if God is just and if God is love, then justice has to be served in a, in a way that reflects his love for us and his hatred for evil and sin. And so God's dilemma when faced with our sin and our really unrepentance, God's dilemma was, do I crush them for their sin or do I sweep it under that divine carpet that Joe Vitale was just talking about? And Paul illustrates this well. God took a third path. It says in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, when you were dead in sin, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. 
and has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. The cross was God's answer to the messiness of our sin, to the chaos caused by our unrighteousness, and to our unwillingness to give way and to repent and to confess. The cross was like a love letter from God to you, but there's no denying that even in that, the cross was a mess. The cross was as messy as it gets. We're talking about pure innocence, just in the hands of ultimate depravity. True love destroyed by true hatred. Blood spilled out. This, the, the purest, most human, most beautiful person to ever live laid bare, naked on a cross, ashamed, bleeding out, suffocating, crying out. Why? Because God saw our mess. He came to put an end to it by taking it on himself. Pray that you won't let this opportunity slide by. The opportunity to be confronted with your own sin. Listen, I know we've heard things like wrath and judgment are bad or whatever, but really it's a, it's a remedy. Because anger and outrage and stuff like that, we've seen what that does in our world in the past year. Anger and outrage cancels people. The wrath of God cancels sin. This world would have us turn against each other. God's wrath, his love would have us turn toward him. This world is in the business of just tearing each other apart. God is in the business of restoring us, redeeming us, taking your mess, making you new. That's who God is. It's what he does. And I know you might think, all right, yeah, I'm all about it. But once again, I'm not like Judah. I don't see myself in that realm of messiness. Well, just think for a second about what it would look like for someone to write down in detail the worst moment of your life. And then the whole world reads it. Forever they read it. Imagine Judah in heaven going, oh, they're reading it again. It was bad, I know, but it gets better. You know, it's like, we would all be in the same place if we're honest. All of us have been caught up in our sin and caught up in the mess. But God is in the redemption business. I want to tell you how Tamar's story ends. What I want you to pay attention to is how God chose to react to Tamar's behavior. By any church's standard today, Tamar should be <laughs> disciplined, ostracized, cut out of the picture somehow. Just think about the, thing, the lengths she went to, and that would get any Christian woman in trouble today. How did God react to Tamar's desperate attempt to salvage a future for herself? How did God react to this young woman's taking her life into her own hands, deceiving and lying and some sexual sin and stuff like that to trick her father-in-law to get her pregnant, to secure a future for herself. How did God react to her? Did he smite her, kill her, do away with her? No. He blessed her. Not just with one child, but with two. Two healthy baby boys. Twins. 
And if you read ahead in the Bible to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 1, you'll see Matthew's family tree of Jesus. And in it, you'll see great names like Abraham, Isaac. You'll see King David. You'll see not-so-great names like Judah. And then you'll see a few women scattered throughout the family tree of Jesus. And you'll see a woman named Tamar, a foreign woman with no hope and no prospects, who got pregnant under some difficult circumstances. And if you follow that line, you'll see that 2,000 years later, another young woman got pregnant out of wedlock in some difficult circumstances. She gave birth to Jesus, the descendant of Tamar and Judah. If God can do that with a story like theirs, what can God do with you? If God can take someone like Judah and Tamar in their mess, and bring about the Savior of the world through it. <laughs> what can God do with you and your mess and your story? I know there's someone either in this room right now or at Timber Grove or online, and you think you've been canceled by God because of your past or your present. I'm going to tell you, no matter what life you've lived to this point, you're not beyond the reach of God's greatness. And then if you just say, right now, I need help, I'm a mess, he will be faithful to show up and to begin the restoration process. That's who he is. That's what he does. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this reminder today because some of us are disheartened and discouraged. We confess we've gotten off the path and we have chased some different idols and different desires. We've gotten tangled up in sin and we're ashamed. We're a mess. Lord, we understand the Bible says you are in the restoration business. The Bible says that you're here to redeem and not just condemn. You're here to cancel our sin and our debt, not us. So Lord, I pray for soft hearts right now in this room to receive this promise. And even if there are still stumbling blocks along the way in our minds or in our past experience with Christians, Lord, I pray for the skeptic's heart to open up right now and to confess we're not who we know we were created to be. We not, we're not who we should be. We're a mess. But God is love. You are love. We receive the promise of the cross that every sin is forgiven and that we can be free. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.